Hey, it's Will Friedle. And Sabrina Bryan. And we're the hosts of the new podcast, Magical Rewind. You may know us from some of your favorite childhood TV movies like My Date with the President's Daughter. And the Cheetah Girls movies. Together we're sitting down to watch all the movies you grew up with and chat with some of your favorite stars and crew that made these iconic movies happen. So kick back, grab your popcorn, and join us. Listen to Magical Rewind on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by State Farm. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bop Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and two-door cinema club. Hey, everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for up to half the cost. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up! and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single line 1, 5, and 10 gig data plans with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plans offered by T-Mobile and Verizon January 2024. Hello, this is my podcast. It's called Cool People Who Did Cool Stuff. I'm Margaret Kiljoy. I'm the host of the podcast. My guest today is John Darnielle. He writes songs and books. And if you haven't read the book Wolf and White Van, you're missing out. Uh, John, how are you doing today? I'm decent. I'm keeping busy, but I'm good. Cool. And we have Sophie on the call, who's our producer. How are you, Sophie? I'm doing well, Margaret. How are you? I'm okay. I think I already said I'm not sure if I said that. If you want to know more about Sophie's job as a producer, you should watch the 1967 Mel Brooks documentary called The Producers, which is all about... <laughs> yeah, it's, what, an ex- uh, it's, it's like they stole my life and put it into a documentary called the producers yeah yeah which is true in music production as well i believe mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um all producers uh are just mel brooks <laughs> <laughs> okay we also have ian as our editor and our theme music is by unwoman and you should check out more music by unwoman so today is part two of our two-part series on those wacky religious radicals of the english civil war the levelers the diggers and the ranters And in part one, we talked about the levelers who don't really seem all that radical by today's standards, but who put their bodies on the line for a republic instead of the dictatorship that they got. But today, uh, I want to talk about people who took things a step further. The diggers um, who wanted to abolish private property and the ranters who didn't believe there was such thing as sin. All very theologically based. You ever heard much about the diggers? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, you run across their name a lot, uh, but I mean, I never have pursued it that much. In part because this is a this is an English movement, right? Yeah, yeah. So I mean, I've heard about it, but I haven't. I'm not an English history, uh, 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 you know, English history expert in any way. So, so yeah. So I, I know roughly like what space they occupy politically, but but that's about it. Yeah, that makes sense. I I kind of had this like distaste for English history and was like much more into Irish history and things like that. And then mm. um, honestly, hearing about some of the complexities of the English Civil War was the first time I was like, oh, right. There's actually really interesting stuff going on with all of that. It is. It's, uh, 
it, it can be quite arcane and there's so few points of yeah. reference and history is like history always refers to itself right so by yeah, the totally. time you're by the time you're 10 in the u.s or in whatever country you grow up in mm -hmm. you have some basics we can talk about whether or not you know those basics are good they always bear some interrogation but you know at the very least the governing myths right and so whereas yeah. uh most of English history, there's no reason really for us to learn it unless we're curious, right? So. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And then there's the sort of like, it's the land of myths. Like, you know, I kind of, <laughs> I like English history and that I liked when I was a kid. I liked things with swords in them, you know? Yeah, which also is not why, actually, yeah. yeah. Um, which actually, you know, actually is to do with the whole world actually has a lot of really interesting sword time stuff. Well, yeah, but um, the thing is with a lot of English history, if it's pre, if it's prior to the modern era, if it's prior to, you know, to good documentation, it why it turns out to be French history, you know, so. Um, yeah, totally. Well, there's a major theme of my new book is that, you know, we think of English castles, but the castle is unquestionably a Norman import, right? Uh, oh, okay. You can't, you can't find a, a castle prior to the French building castles. But the English tradition of the English castle is very much, you know, that's that's an English thing. And it probably, I, I think it might actually be Saxon eventually. But um, but there was a lot of argument about this in the 40s, 50s, and 60s about, you know, about, no, no, the English had their own castles. And, and there's no, well, it's a Norman import. So but what that does to English prehistory, to the stuff that, you know, to mm -hmm. the myths as well, you know, this is a big thing in Devil House in my new book that, that uh, King Arthur, King Arthur has a castle and the Knights of the Round Table live there, right? But so therefore when King Arthur, yeah, but no, the thing is, okay. there probably was a King Arthur, but he was English, right? Mm -hmm. And he he reigned in England before there were castles in England, right? And before there were kings who ruled England, right? So uh, so all all this stuff is maybe not. No, he would have he would have predated Alfred. So um, I'm like I'm not a king's guy, generally speaking. But I did a lot mm -hmm. of work on this, and like so so what 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 a lot of these kings turn out to be rather is local thanes right uh, t-h-e-g-n i don't know if you know the term mm -hmm. um, yeah but they turn out to be thanes you know and their castle was probably like a slightly less modest dwelling than everybody else's you know it's like uh, I'm super, yeah, okay. th this stuff is very interesting to me so yeah well that's a good pitch i that's actually um i've read two of your books i, I don't actually remember how many novels you have out um but i have not read devil house yet so this is Telling me that there's castles or lack of castles. Yeah, well, I've kind well, I've good. kind of given you a little bit of a spoiler for one of the big reveals there, but it, it won't uh, uh, it, it won't take anything off the plot. So, okay, cool. Okay, so the levelers they they get called the levelers by people who don't like them very much, right? They get compared to the original levelers fifty years earlier who had been following that guy with a little magic bit of green cheese who told them to tear down all the fences and kind of got them all killed, uh, Captain Pouch. So. But then the the levelers that we talked about last time they they didn't want to redistribute the land or the wealth they just wanted political equality, uh, not to overturn the economic order. So they didn't really see themselves as leveling, which is fair because they weren't leveling. Uh, today's heroes, though, they sure as hell wanted to do a leveling. They they said, and I, I paraphrase here: those people aren't the levelers; we're the true levelers, and. But it's impossible to name your own political movement back then, apparently, because the levelers who wanted to be called the agitators and the Quakers who wanted to be called the Society of Friends, the, the, the people who wanted to be called the true levelers get called the diggers and the name stuck. Hmm. And they, they first announced themselves to the world. This is after they had started doing some of what they'll do, which I'll get to. 
with a pamphlet called The True Leveler's Standard Advanced. In this case, standard meaning flag. So we've moved forward the flag of leveling. And, and you know, so they were like, we are the true levelers. This is our, our, our book, our manifesto. It says true levelers on it. And people were like, but it was Britain. So they were like, well, we're going to call you the diggers because, I mean, look at that. You're digging a hole. So you're the <laughs> diggers. Well, I think also self-branding is is usually a, a fairly failed effort. People really try to do it, but uh, but you wind up getting getting called what what you know if it's a vast movement, the the other people in the movement wind up naming it. Yeah, totally. Or in this case, a lot of the the people who are outside the movement who are either looking down on you or or not. You know, like the name that the media runs with is going to be what lasts in history in a lot of these cases, but. They did dig. Uh, specifically, they wanted to get onto the commons, the land or land that they should believe, that they believe should be the commons and grow food communally. And I don't know everything about what they wanted to plant. I, I did look up and check that potatoes had been introduced uh, from the new world to the old world by this point. So potatoes were a possibility. Okay. Um, but, uh, but mostly they planted peas and parsnips and carrots and barley and corn, uh, which are all perfectly good fine plants. It's fine. And they got their justification for what they were doing from the Bible. Uh, specifically, the, the verse that they quoted a lot was Acts 4.32. And the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and of one soul. Neither said of any of them that aught of the things which he possessed was his own, but that, but that they had all things in common. And so this was their, you know, all of us who believe, we will share everything. That is right. what the Bible asks us to do. And they also got their justification from the fact that food prices were at an all-time high because of the war and everyone was hungry and the country was absolutely ravaged by these deep political divisions, which is, of course, totally unfamiliar to listeners today. <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> the thing is, trying to reconcile the Bible with gigantic nations is a fool's errand. You know, <laughs> the Bible is, 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 a, is a book for, for people who are living in a much more uh, in smaller communities, right? So it's like uh, the Bible's a book of community, not nations, in my view. Oh, that makes sense. I like that idea. Um, so, but but that hasn't stopped everybody from trying to insist that like when the word nation, whatever it's Hebrew or, or a Septuagint mm -hmm. equivalent is, when it appears like it's supposed to, especially Americans have a constitutionalist reading of everything. It's like, well, a nation, they said nation, and now nations are big, so it has to apply to us. But none of the authors of the Bible would have had a notion of a, of a nation having the sort of size and scope and power that, that even the smallest nations have now, really. Um, so, yeah. So yeah. So it's trying trying to trying to harmonize stuff in the Bible that seems fairly clear uh, isn't often isn't often uh, compatible with uh, with modern facts on the ground. No, that makes sense. And then there's the kind of this um, you know the difference between uh, nation and state, right? Um, nation, state, and country are all kind of actually different things that overlap in a lot of ways. But you know. Yeah. And there's another thing always worth remembering is like. In these readings of the Bible that are happening in the 1700s, 1800s, uh, they tend to disregard that the disciples thought Jesus was coming back next week. You know, they, they, they didn't think, oh, he's going to go away for a very, very long time in some future generation we can't conceive of. Uh, we'll see him again. They, they expected okay. to see him again in their lifetimes. You know? so, oh, okay. uh, so when they're talking about sharing and stuff, they're talking about sharing going forward until the thing that we expect to happen happens. Right? Um, that's my understanding. Yeah. No, it's interesting. This is... Absolutely, why I wanted you to be the the, the guest for this particular episode. But so, but this isn't, so by the time you get to the eighteen hundreds, mm -hmm. you're doing this sort of building 
a functional public ideology, right? That's mm-hmm. rooted in what was a much more communal faith, right? Um, yeah. Uh, so there's, it's no accident that these, that these people are, are, are utilizing Christian concepts and everything, but those concepts are very hard to use at scale. Yeah, totally. As we have yep. noted. <laughs> yep. And so what, one of my friends I was talking to about the diggers, I, I was like, okay, what, why are they so important to you? You know, I, I was looking, I was reading about them. And one of my friends was like, I'm so excited about the diggers. I'm excited you're doing an episode about the diggers. And what she said that she particularly liked about them is that there's sort of an essential gentleness to them. There's, they come out of years and years of war and strife. And they're these like frustrated, hungry peasants. A lot of them had been soldiers in the war. And they were like, you know what, fuck it. I'm going to go plant vegetables and never touch a sword again. And that was like, a lot of the basic idea of it is the sort of essential gentleness. And a lot of discussion about political radicals tends to leave out the, the gentle radicals. So I think that's why it's one of the things I get excited about, about the diggers. Yeah, no, I mean, that's extremely true. Uh, in radical spaces, and people tend to, there's a couple of ways, a couple of spaces along the growth to get that way, but there's many, many people who, whom gentleness is not an affirmative value, right? Yeah. Uh, and, and they make, they tend to make extremely, uh, you know, they want to argue about that as a general rule, right? They want to, they want to say, you know, you're failing to stand up for the people who can't afford to be gentle. Right. And, and so forth. It's a compelling argument quite often, you know? Yeah. Uh, but, uh, but I'm not sure that it's true. I mean, but you know, right now, um, you know, there's a lot of talk about, there's been a lot of talk about, it, especially like, you know, shouldn't a marginalized community arm itself, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, if if the entire power of the state is weaponized against it, it's a super valid point. But uh, but I think uh, I think those wind up sort of polarizing. Then you say, well, if we're doing that, then 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 values of gentleness aren't part of our deal. And it's like, hey, you want to be folding in gentleness because that's where you want to wind up at the end, and you sort of can't, you know, table gentleness and then come back to it later. You know? Yeah. Well, and actually, I mean, that's kind of interesting to me because as someone who you know, um, I think people have listened to the show before know that I'm like. I'm armed. I'm a trans woman who lives in in the South, and I chose to yeah. to be armed. But but the idea that like being armed and gentleness should be counter to each other it just seems absolutely ludicrous to me. You know, um, mm. and there's I like, mean, I, I think your possessions have mm-hmm. you know they come they come to define you. I you know it's like I I'm 100 percent with like I'm glad you're armed, yeah. <laughs> even though I'm an anti gun guy. It's like right. I don't I I would prefer that nobody be armed, and so. Right. You know, I, I support really intense legislation about firearms, but uh, right. but in the absence of that legislation, I think it makes also good sense for somebody who might find themselves to be a target to be armed. You know, I don't, I, like, it doesn't do any good to say, well, because I'm against people owning firearms, I won't have one. It's, that's right. not really a good position because it's like, you know, <laughs> it's like, I'm also against, uh, you know, I'm against people inequitably making money. But right now, if I can make more money than somebody, I'm, I'm not going to say, oh, no, you have to pay me less because... Because it's, right, totally. it's like, that's, that's foolish. It's so, yeah. you know, uh, yeah, but, uh, but yeah, it's, it, it's, uh, but, I, but I do think, you know, it's like the whole weapons are in and of themselves, not gentle, you know, that, that it's like, we, what you want to avoid is, is thinking about them in certain sorts of ways, you know, it's like, the, yeah, the, uh, uh, you want to, but then as C.S. Lewis has a riff about this, about how, you know, if you're going to war, you should do it with, with both hands instead of. You don't go to war going, well, I, I hate to have to kill this guy. <laughs> it's like, you, no, you should kill your enemy when you're at war, you know? So Right. But I mean, it, I mean, it's actually kind of interesting to me because that's one of the things that I, I didn't prepare anything about this at all, but it's one of the things I've been thinking about a lot lately is about this, like, 
how do we hold on to maybe there's a tension in holding on to gentleness as like while going armed right or while trying to become more capable of expressing self-defense um or community defense but you know i'll have to think about the c.s lewis part of it because part of me is like well i actually some of the people that i respect the most are people who do the hard work of holding on to you know however they'll view it their their humanity or their holiness or their you know, uh, their soul or however they want to phrase it while yeah, engaging also, in these kinds of things, you know? There's, there's stuff in the Bhagavad Gita about this where Arjuna uh, mm-hmm. uh, is on the battlefield at Kurukshetra and uh, and the whole Bhagavad Gita kicks off because he says to his friend Krishna, he doesn't really want to fight and don't the scriptures forbid us from doing this. And Krishna, who is God, and mm-hmm. also is his friend, says, oh, no, no, no. If your role is soldier, you should be a soldier, right? It's like that's right. it's your that's it's kind of like it's it's to me it's actually labor related. Like you should do your job and do it wholeheartedly. The only way to do any kind of work for the Bhagavad Gita is to give it all to God. So when you are cooking, you're cooking for God. You're cooking the best you can, you know. And when you're fighting, you're you're at war for God, you know, whether it's mm-hmm. a holy battle or not. And that's a, a, a it's, it's much bigger than the scope of our discussion here. <laughs> but but those are but they're they're both in both traditions. There's a notion that that whichever role you're inhabiting. You should inhabit wholeheartedly, right? Yeah. Uh, rather than rather than trying to sort of cut, you know, uh, trying to to uh, hedge bets, you know. Yeah. No, that's interesting, and and it gets into, you know, one of the things that we're going to talk about a little bit later in the script is that these people are also pacifists, right? And that is a big part of their their movement. Um, and yeah, I don't know. <laughs> it's, it's a lot to think about. I'm going to think about some more of that. Yeah. Okay, so there's this. There's this guy who gets called the the leader of the diggers. He's not the leader of the diggers. He he's not the founder of the diggers. There's no particular evidence that he was the leader besides the fact that he uh, was the writer. Uh, and his name is Gerard Winstanley. And and he's kind of he's the guy who showed up and saw what was going on and wrote about it and spread the word. So in in some ways he's a leader, but he's not the leader of this particular movement. And he was born in 1609. He was middle class. He moved to London, became a tailor. In 1643, he goes bankrupt. And he didn't like capitalism. Well, capitalism doesn't really exist yet, but, you know, he doesn't like this particular system that's developing. And he he blames the, quote, cheating sons and the thieving art of buying and selling. So he really hates buying and selling, uh, partly because he wasn't all that good at it. But And the Civil War doesn't help his business either. So he's bankrupt. And he fucks off to the village of Cobham to get a job as a cowherd. And I prefer to imagine a cowherd as a cowboy. So I'm going to refer to him as a cowboy. And Don't it was think dr- it's the same thing. <laughs> he's yeah. more like a shepherd, I think. So uh... yeah, yeah, no, yeah. He's not actually moving cows across the, the plains or anything like that. He's keeping track of them. Okay, fine. The cow shepherd. And it's during his time as a cow shepherd that he starts turning his thoughts to religion and theology. And he's looking for answers to what is wrecked his life and how he might make it and the lives of other people better. And he also winds up a leveler. And I like how the levelers basically was this big mass of the people who thought things should be better somewhat. And then all of these different factions within the levelers came out and and did other things and went in different directions with that leveling or with being a leveler. So Win Stanley and the Diggers, the true levelers, they branch off from the same philosophical starting point as the levelers. And Win Stanley, during his time, you know, pondering all this theology or whatever, he believes in a few things. 
first and foremost, he believes in reason. He saw reason within each person as the godliness within each individual, man and woman. Um, and he did explicitly in his earlier writings say man and woman, um, not just using man as a catch-all for all people, though he used that occasionally also. Later, he gets at, in his post-digging works, which I don't like as much, he gets um, real explicit about how man is the head of the household. Um, hmm. and the leveling stops at the door. But... Well, he doesn't say it, doesn't phrase it, the leveling stops at the door, but that's, a, you know. But he talks about how the, the word God can't sum up the divine and how he and so many others were led astray by that word to think of God as an external thing. So he pretty much called God reason. And he said that it was chill if everyone came up with their own word for God. Just, yes, this is a very uh, 19th century English position. Okay. Well, he's, he's, he's two centuries ahead of time, three centuries. Oh, wait, this is when, the 16th century? This is the 17th century, the 1600s. Wow. So this, yeah, this sort of thinking in the 19th century becomes pretty, I mean, obviously American transcendentalism uh, uh, mm -hmm. goes into that, you know, and, uh, and, you, and you wind up, you know, after the, you wind up in the 20th century with, with you know, the AA credo people saying, we, you have something you call a higher power, right? Uh, that's, it's all, that's on a continuum, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've, I've actually been interested in, I've watched some of my friends go into AA and have to learn how to, to work that into how they consider, I don't know, like a lot of my like atheist well, the, friends, right? The thing is, in, in, a, well, in AA, mm -hmm. you, you don't have to believe in God, you just have to believe uh, that there's the power greater than yourself, right? Yeah. Which seems self-evident, but when you are an active addict, you may or may not actually believe that. <laughs> it's like right. Totally. When you're running on ego all the time. When you sit down and actually look at how you're behaving, you say, "Oh, it, it, it seems that I don't think there are powers greater than myself." You know, so, uh, so yeah, so like uh, in you know, it, it can be. I had one guy explain to me once. We say, "Well, it could be a chair because I can't change the nature of this chair." What you're wanting <laughs> to, what you're wanting to learn is 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 the serenity prayer, the ability to accept the things you can't change, change things you can, and to be smart enough to know the difference between those two things. Right? Yeah. So Winstanley believes that it's entirely biblically justified, if not necessitated, to abolish kings, and that there ought to be no masters and servants, no aristocracy and commoner. And for this, he's seen as like generally the, the father of Christian socialism. And although you've already pointed out that you can sort of biblically justify a lot of things, and it's all based in these different scales and contexts. But um, no, sorry, I, I got lost thinking about how like this was, this is like two centuries to go back what you we were just saying. It's like two centuries before a lot of other people are saying this. And that's like one of, one of the things that's so interesting about the diggers is their outsized impact theologically and politically for how small of a movement they actually were. So that's kind of interesting that I knew about how it influenced some of the like the political movements but, or prefigured some of the political movements. But it's cool to know that it also prefigured a lot of theological ideas. The thinking, um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. And so he, he also, to prefigure a lot of 19th century socialism, he said that the enclosure of the commons and the creation of private property was essentially an act of theft and banditry. It's a way of stealing from everyone else. And from his a de declaration from the poor oppressed people of England, it's the name of one of his pamphlets, the power of enclosing land and owning property was brought into the creation by your ancestors by the sword, which first did murder their fellow creatures, men, and after plunder or steal away their land and left this land successively to you, their children. And therefore, though you did not kill or thieve, yet you hold that cursed thing in your hand by the power of the sword. And so you justify the wicked deeds of your fathers, and that sin of your fathers shall be visited upon the head of you and your children 
to the third and fourth generation and longer too, till your bloody and thieving power be rooted out from the land. And I thought this was interesting partly because that's also a, not a terrible description of what it means to live as a white person in the United States in terms of like a kind of like, well, I didn't do the colonizing, you know, and and that's true. But then like realizing that like we have inherited what has been stolen at the point of the mm. sword. And he was also, uh, I believe, the first person in English, not the first person overall, but the first person in English to espouse Christian universalism in writing, which, as I understand it, again, not a huge theology girl of this podcast is turning me into one because it's so tied into history that I like, um, which is the concept that everyone, even the most sinful people, eventually get into heaven. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean... <laughs> <laughs> Most people wind up believing that. There, there's a great deal to say about that. Uh -huh. uh, and I mean, it's, it's not, once you get into those subjects, you sort of can't just open the door and, and say, well, here's a, here's a thumbnail on it. And we'll move back to the other thing, you know. Uh, but okay. I mean, it, it, it's the exact opposite of, of, you know, what Calvin, John Calvin, and there are, there's an mm -hmm. active Calvinist strain right now. It's like Calvinism has actually been, a, uh, there's been a, a resurgence of Calvinist thinking, you know, of, of, of uh, and, you know, that's predeterminism, the like you're either getting into yeah. heaven or not based on how Yeah, you it was born. already decided when you were born, right? Mm -hmm. uh, which is like, I'm, I'm not a Calvinist in any uh -huh. way. And so I can't conceive of having this position. Why? Well, yeah. I mean, I can't conceive of it within any understanding of the God that I serve. Um, mm -hmm. You know, uh, and, and the God that I serve has lots of faces. And I consider, you know, like I can understand many different perspectives on that. But I can't imagine asking anybody to behave any kind of way if it, if everything is predetermined yeah you know then then there's no reason for me to do anything and you know uh then you have to construct a whole theology around the possibility of losing the grace that you were born with right um and and none of that this none of this has, has scriptural support in my view mm -hmm. uh but but at the same time it's and this actually has to do with with issues of gentleness versus i don't know what you'd call the opposite of that you know with, with, mm -hmm. with Ferocity. You know, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I guess. I mean, it, it's you search for for masculine and feminine archetypal terms, right? You know, for the feminine versus the masculine. You know, the feminine receives, and the masculine puts out. You know, gives, mm -hmm. right, and all that that kind of stuff, uh, which we're at present, you know, interrogating intensely and for the better. But um, but when you say everybody's getting in, right? I mean, I like this idea, but it also becomes harder to ask people to care about any of the thought that went into that, right? Right. Like, and, and I get that, and this is where I have a conservative part of me, that like mm -hmm. I think, you know, if everybody had to spend more time with these ideas, if it was, you know, when, when people talk about religious education in schools, well, obviously I don't want that, right? But I think it does almost anybody good to contemplate the world's religions. It's like I would, if somebody right. said, oh, there ought to be an actual course on world religion for high school students or, or, or junior high students, and then, it, and the course had to be mandated, so it really did fairly cover, you know, all the, you know, Buddhism, Christianity, Judaism, Islam, you know. Uh, I'd, be, I'd be in favor of that. I think, you know, ha wrestling with those ideas does a person and a society good, and an absence of contact with those ideas, direct contact and, and mm -hmm. thorny wrestling contact, I think uh, leaves, leaves a person wondering, you know, leaves a person missing something. You know, I think everybody goes out and does it on their own is maybe not the most functional way of... Of, of having people on the same page about some of the bigger questions that that opens up. Not that people don't have their own good thoughts about this stuff. They do, right? right? 
but but they're huge thoughts, right? And it's not really, unless you're the type of person who's naturally drawn to them, you're not going to naturally dig deeper and, and have, have you know, big moral and ethical self-searchings about them unless that's fun for you. Right. right. So, so, uh, so, so yeah, I, but, uh, but as far as universalism goes, I think we do wind up, uh, most, most people who aren't kind of really reactionary wind up at a type of universalism. And in part, I think that's because many people don't, aren't re including me, mm -hmm. aren't really convinced that most of the stuff they believe is real anyway. <laughs> and they say, yeah. and they say, look, the, the, the most important part of this that, 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 that not be real for me is the notion that, that somebody be, can be condemned for, you know, I mean, older versions of before the, I don't know when, well, probably Augustine dealt with this, but, uh, you know, the notion that somebody who never heard the name of Jesus doesn't get to see God because they didn't confess it. I mean, that's, this runs counter to, to the whole, yeah to the whole God that you're supposed to be teaching there. And so, well, that's how you know, I lost uh, that's how I lost my like faith or whatever when I was when I was very young is it just was like this whole concept of like I don't know if I if I don't follow the following thing that feels very arbitrary I like spend eternity in damnation that it, it made me kind of throw away the rest of it for a very long time. Well, also, I don't find right? a lot of biblical support for damnation is the thing. Okay. I find I think the Jehovah's Witnesses have a mm -hmm. nice thing on this. They they also have several things that are really quite out there, mm -hmm. but. uh but Jehovah's Witnesses will tell you there is no fiery hell at all, mm -hmm. right? And that that's not supported by the Bible, and it's not, right? Yeah. Uh, what what they paint is like, look, 144,000 people are going to go uh, live with God forever, right? Okay. That's such a tiny number is the thing. It's like yeah. it seemed big to them at the time, but now we have such a broad view of history. I mean, that means there's no way there's any of those 144,000 left. You have to have already had 144,000 people. Right. But... But beyond that, that the people who don't make it will just die and cease to exist. Right. Okay. Um, not that they'll go and be punished because eternal punishment is not compatible with, uh, this is one of the things I go in on. From the very beginning of the Bible to the end, mm -hmm. God as a father figure is a huge idea. Now, uh, historians of religion will tell you this is partly because we were coming out of a period in which God was a mother figure and it was very important to the patriarchal religions to establish clearly we have a father now and not a mother. Right. And then the Catholics have, to me, the, the most fun way of, of reconciling this and understanding that the absence of the maternal energy is a real absence, you know, and then we, we get Marian cults and worship, which is great yeah. in my view. Uh, but, uh, but from the beginning of the Bible to the end, God is the father. The fatherhood of God is so central, right? It's, it's such a, 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 a part of God that we sort of, we begin with that parent to Adam and Eve, and then Adam is the father to the human race, right? All this stuff. Well, what kind of father, under any circumstances, no matter what their child had done, no matter what, the most monstrous child in the world would say, well, you know what? You never get to see me again, and you suffer eternally. Yeah. There is literally, I have two children. There is nothing they could do. I don't care what they do, right? I mean, yeah. obviously, I would be, I would grieve forever if they become hard people, you know, yeah. but there's no way to condemn them to an eternity of suffering. That's monstrous. Yeah. And any understanding of God that would do that is monstrous in my view. It's like, uh, yeah. and I don't think the Bible supports it either. I don't, I don't think, uh, I, I, I certainly don't think Jesus has anything to say about that. <laughs> you know, uh, it's like, I think it's a very, I think it's a, a keep people in line teaching. I mean, I think yeah. the, the same thing is that, you know, that boring Satanists think about this is like, you know, but, but they're right. It's like, it's a, it's crowd control, right? <laughs> so, yeah. um, 
So, uh, you know, and the thing is, what they would say, this is a Machiavellian view, is that, you know, well, some people need that kind of crowd control. A lot of people do, actually. Right. And that is a hard, you know, that's a hard thing to parse. I don't, I'm not necessarily in acceptance of it, but. Right. It feels about right. You know, it's like plenty of people are not going to do all the hard work of thinking about this stuff. And it will probably be better off if they're just told what to do. And there's plenty of circumstances in which I am that guy where I don't, don't, don't give me all the complicated stuff and let me make my own decision. I'll make a poor decision. Tell me what I'm supposed to do. Right. right. <laughs> like, and I'm better off that way. You know, there's a lot of situations where that's me. So th these are complicated issues. And I forget what the taking off point. <laughs> no, it's all right. Um, uh, I, I also don't have a good ad segue to go from there, but I have to now because of the <laughs> the constraints of the capitalistic system that I live within. So, well, friends, royal pudding, royal pudding, more food energy than sweet, fresh milk. Eat royal pudding in your home. Exactly. Rich, 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 rich flavors, smooth, smooth, smooth as silk. More, more, more food energy than sweet, fresh milk. Royal, more, more, more food energy than sweet, fresh milk. Welcome back to the Cool People Who Did Cool Stuff podcast. I'm your host, John Darneal. Today, we'll be talking about <laughs> Croatian literature. <laughs> It works for me, I think. <laughs> Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and two-door cinema club. Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. Could just be in me. Amy Winehouse, Back to Black, directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R, under 17, not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. All right, so... Yeah, no, I, the, the Christian universalism thing is is really interesting because yeah, like I like I like I said, I kind of I moved away from thinking about a lot of these things because I saw how transparently those they were designed as systems of control and well, no, no, but not designed, okay, right, uh, but became that's, that's utilized by uh, okay. I mean, the thing is, we're seeing this in in politics right now in real mm -hmm. time that there's a lot of ideas out there that might seem good or bad. And they always, every idea is available to everybody. Yeah. And the bad guys utilize the ones that are effective, right? Yeah, um, totally. And so, but but the notion that they were constructed for that purpose, I don't think that's true. Uh, okay. Very rarely. Like even Augustine, you know, Augustine has a lot of loathsome stuff, but I don't think Augustine was, was, uh, was trying to construct, uh, you know, a method of oppression so much as he was parsing stuff the way he thought about it. And some of his thoughts were all fucked up. But you know, then Augustinian thought can be used to uh, 
uh, you know, deposit this, well, split between the mind and the body, which is another thing. So. Right. Well, no, I mean, like, and that's why, you know, I mean, frankly, that's part of why I'm an anarchist, although I, it, as any other ideology, is capable of following into this. But, you know, Tolkien's whole thing with, like, you actually must cast the, the ring of power into the fire. You know, you can't. Yeah. Um, that's, a, that's my whole thing. Um, so you don't like nations either. You, 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 you would envision a world in which, all the, in which we live in smaller communities. Uh, I would say like smaller communities that are federated. So there's like still organizational systems that are larger. Um, but mm -hmm. the, the decision making is more bottom up than top down. I'm not like hard line about exactly how I envision like the entire world living. And so anarchism is like a combination of like a way of critiquing power. And then it's also a way of thinking about larger societies. But some of the larger oh, societies. Oh, I'm hip. I, I used oh, yeah. to. I used to ID as an anarchist. Oh, okay. Uh, I, I don't know what I do now, but yeah. Uh, no, I, I, I think I think anarchism <laughs> is an extremely uh, optimistic uh, yeah. philosophy. And, and I'm middle aged, and often I mean I'm I'm considered one of the more optimistic people you know, but I'm not sure that I would trust people with anarchism at this point. You know. So, yeah. yeah. Fair enough. I mean, not that I wouldn't trust anarchists. Anarchists are great. Right. <laughs> so, but and I share many of their values, but. But uh, but I, I you know a lot yeah. of my a lot of my communist friends who who believe in like some some fairly robust uh, state systems of control yeah I, I I take their point in recent years that like sometimes you have to tell people what to do <laughs> so. I think it's like a there's like a a balance that isn't like a fifty fifty balance it's not like a little of this and a little bit of that I think it's a lot of like both and in terms of like like what you're talking about about um wanting to be told what to do by a priest let's say, because, because you're not, it, it, it's like, there are many times that I want to be told what to do because that is not where I'm putting my energy. So like on some level, there's people who I like would trust to develop certain ideas and then be like, okay, I trust you. The same as I would trust someone to design the, the wind power that powers the neighborhood I live in. Let's say, you know, I, there's a, I don't know, this is completely off. So we should probably go back to the diggers. We should, because we've been 45 minutes in. We should. Yeah. <laughs> so All right. right, let's go to the diggers. So what the diggers actually did, as far as I can tell, the first digger commune was started by five people, which does not include this guy, Gerard Winstanley. But it does include a guy named William Everard, who had been a scout in the parliamentarian army, who kept getting arrested for various rabble-rousing. And at one point, uh, he stormed a church to declare his various religious truths that's the way to go you gotta be storming a church from time to time yeah exactly a lot of the people that i come up in the show storm churches and he gets called a madman constantly all the different accounts of him are like oh he's just a crazy guy but he's the he's probably the founder of the diggers he didn't write so we don't know as much about him but in 1649 these five folks, including this guy, head up to a place called St. George's Hill in Surrey, which is a county in the middle bottom of England. And they found some enclosed land that they felt like should not be enclosed, should be commons. And so they just made it commons again. They started tilling the soil and planting their crops. By the end of the week, 30 more people joined them, including Gerard now. And basically they said, anyone who wants can come here and plant and grow and we'll all share. But not that many people came. Various accounts of people visiting the commune say they saw like 12 people, 20 people, and they loom really large in history, but this was not a mass movement, uh, not compared even to the, the thousand people that Captain Pouch had gotten together 50 years or so years earlier. 
And it's possible that the diggers weren't even popular with the locals. This part's hard to parse, but it's like one account from the time says the first crop of barley they planted was ripped up by annoyed locals. And I don't know one way or the other whether this meant commoners who were like, oh, these fucking hippies get out of here. Or whether it was the Lord of the Manor sending like his people to go fuck this thing up and drive them off. And I can really see it either way. I don't know. So they put out a manifesto, which is probably the reason they did it all in the first place. Um, And it's written by Gerard and it's signed by 46 people called A Declaration from the Poor Oppressed People of England. And yeah, um, their, their beliefs are throw open the prisons, till the land in common, be pacifists, and respect the, quote, earth our mother, which I hadn't run across this before as like a medieval Christian thing to say, to talk about Mother Earth. Oh, yeah. But um, yeah, apparently it's completely normal for medieval Christians to refer to the earth as the mother. Oh, this is one of my old hobby horses. We we tend oh. to think anything that we've heard of uh, originates with us. <laughs> like, and, yeah, yeah. And, uh, and yeah, it's like, no, ideas like that are, are, are very old. And uh, yeah, and yeah that's, uh, I mean... Yeah, it's, but however, it is also, I think, fairly radical at that point to be talking like that. Not because it's new, uh, right. but because, uh, because it's not Well, it's because it's old because, in a lot of ways. Yeah, no, yeah, very good. Yeah, that's right. And so, um, and they were opposed to buying and selling. Uh, in general, they were opposed to buying and selling, but in particular, selling the earth or products of the earth was like really bad. And because the earth is the common treasury that we all share. And they said they had no need for laws amongst each other and that um, basically whipping people and locking them up doesn't make people into better people. So, and at this point, I really, you know, they're basically Christian anarchist pacifists. And Gerard Winstanley sums up their pacifism at the time, uh, quote, the way to cast out kingly power is not to cast it out by the sword, for this doth but set him in more power and removes him from a weaker to a stronger hand. The only way to cast him out is for the people to leave him to himself, to forsake fighting and all oppression, and to live in love towards one another. The power of love is the true savior. And then again, later he goes on to say, like after he's no longer a digger and he's like writing all these laws, he says it's totally chill for husbands to beat their kids and wives with a stick. So, Well, you know, people change. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, exactly. (laughs) So right now they're all diggers. The local lords write letters to the government and they're like, hey, this weird thing is happening. Maybe send cavalry. So cavalry comes. General, the general, this guy Fairfax, he sends cavalry. And they show up and they talk with two people, present themselves as leaders, uh, William the Wild Rabbarouser and Gerard the Theologian. Um, the cavalry guy writes back to his general and he's like, yeah, William's a total madman. And says, William and Gerard, go present yourself to the general. So they present themselves to Fairfax. And they refuse to take off their hats in the presence of the general because all people are equal. And this causes a huge stir. And then uh, they defend their case basically to this revolutionary leader. William, he says he's of the Jewish race at this point. And I, I spent a while trying to figure out what he means by this. Um, I can't tell whether he's saying I am Jewish, like religiously or culturally, or if he's saying his family converted recently, or more likely, I think it's some kind of reference to being descended from the original Christians. I don't know. Well, man, that's that's a this is a giant question for a lot of uh, English thinkers: is what's their connection? And uh, and there's a lot of you know William Blake thinks about this stuff. Yeah, uh, and and so does the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints, right? They 
their whole teaching is that Jesus came to North America, right? Now, their whole teaching is central, mm -hmm. uh, that after, after the resurrection, he came over here, right? Uh, this is a way that, that nations that are Christianized grapple with the fact that this is a Semitic religion from the Middle East, uh, Palestine, yeah, uh -huh. right? Uh, and, and well, that it becomes a very powerful religion, so everybody wants it, right? Yeah. But, uh, but they want to find a way to claim it. But they also want to sort of claim, claim it natively. Yeah. This happens a lot. A lot of people are always claiming communities that they may or may not belong to, right? And so yeah. <laughs> but when they see that they have some power or cultural cachet or something, you will often find people say, well, you know, I'm not actually one of you, but I'm a lot like you. Can I hang? You know, and so, yeah. and uh, and because coalition building is powerful, often it's, it's in everybody's interest to say, yeah, yeah, no, yeah, you're good. <laughs> so, yeah. No, no, that, 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 that makes sense. Um, and so he says, I had a vision that people should go up and dig and plant in the earth and that they were peaceful when they wouldn't resist. And they just wanted to plant the commons and then everyone would see that it's a better way to live. And so Fairfax is like, all right, sure, whatever. Just, I'm not dealing with this, go away. And Gerard, the theologian, uh, the writer, he goes back to the diggers, but William, the rabble rouser, whose vision started the whole thing, he kind of just wanders off at this point and doesn't go back. He starts working in various different fields, like, like not fields, like fields of study, but like literal fields where people grow things. But one town he shows up in, as soon as he shows up, people start acting weird. Like people start walking around in trances and shit as soon as he shows up. So he gets accused of witchcraft and eventually he gets thrown in uh, Bethlehem Royal Hospital, which is a psychiatric hospital that's been around for 800 years, whose reputation is so grim, it's where we get the word Bedlam. Yeah. And his trail goes dark in Bedlam. And so the diggers keep digging without their, their prophet, their, their visionary founder. But the thing is, is that this land they're on, they claim it's commons, but someone else claims it's his, right? Uh, Francis Drake, to be specific, not the famous slave trader, um, who also was the first person to circumnavigate the world in a single trip, a different Francis Drake. This guy was not much nicer. He sent gangs to go beat everyone up, and when that didn't work, he burns one of their houses down, and finally, the diggers all get arrested and put on trial, and they get accused of being ranters, who we'll get into in a little bit, who they actually had beef with, so they were kind of annoyed. Right. It's kind of like now, if like they arrested communists and were like, you damn anarchists, you know, they'd be like, what the hell? Like, um, oh, that would make the communists very angry. Yeah. Uh, and so the diggers got told, if you go back to Francis Drake's land, the whole army is going to come. So they move on to another enclosure on a different lord's land. The new lord does the same shit to them. By April 1650, they're driven out from there too, and the trail goes dark for these diggers. Um, I don't think they ever got a single harvest out of, out of their work. And, and we mostly hear about this particular group because that guy, when Stanley hung out with them, and he's the one who wrote all the pamphlets and shit, but they weren't the only group of diggers. Colonies cropped up in at least six other towns, and I don't think history knows the fate of these colonies, or at least I wasn't able to determine it. And... My my guess is it's about the same. They were probably dispersed by the sort of one-two punch of legal harassment and mob violence. I like to imagine that they like went on for a long ass time and just kept doing their thing, you know? But right. they probably didn't. After the diggers, when Stanley goes on and he writes his utopia uh, called Utopia, where he lays out all of his new beliefs. And these aren't really the beliefs of the diggers. They're this guy's theories. He says there's two types of governments. There's monarchies, which are bad, and commonwealths, which are good. And that if the commonwealth ever starts doing monarchy shit, it becomes bad. 
And his commonwealths are this sort of strange communism like the diggers wanted, but with all these governmental systems, uh, which is like no longer the we don't need laws amongst ourselves era. And he wrote out all of the laws in great detail in his book. And I have a feeling that 90% of people who write utopias are doing it because they're really excited about like the like engineering they've done. The like, this is the laws and this is how it all work, you know? Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's a big question is, is how these people get this way and, and what's really going on with them. <laughs> yeah, totally. Well, I think you get a sense of it because his very first law and one of the only capital offenses it's a capital crime to be a lawyer. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the thing is like that, you hear that kind of stuff in Shakespeare too. It's a, uh, it's, it's pretty, it's yeah. a pretty uh, entrenched idea. But we also always got to remember what they mean by lawyer is different from what we mean by lawyer. Just like when you, yeah. you mentioned prisons, yeah. we do you prison history. Prison is madness today also, but, but the nature of prisons back then, it was pretty chaotic. You yeah. know, it was like a, a building with a lock on it, you know? Yeah, totally. <laughs> I guess about it. So, yeah. No, that's a good point. I, I don't. I don't really think the Panopticon is better, but uh, but uh, right. But it's like, but at the same time, it's like, if it's just me in a room with a bunch of other people who've been deemed undeserved by authorities, I, I don't like my chances. You know. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fair enough. Yeah, that actually comes up some of the times in some of the histories I do, where, you know, the the political radical just gets thrown in the cage with all the other people, and it goes really badly. Um, yeah. <laughs> So some of the other laws in this utopia, anyone who hurts anyone gets hurt in exactly the same way in return by an executioner. So the executioner doesn't only kill people. Also, like you punch someone in the face, the executioner comes and punches you in the face. Eye for an eye, black eye for a black eye. Um, except if you hit a cop, which he calls overseers, then you become a servant for a year. And the punishment for almost everything else is a, is servant for a year where you are like a slave to the state. And anyone who wants can just show up in like the general pool of like slaves and borrow you for the day. And it, some of the other things that get you sent to become a servant for a year, uh, if you refuse to grow food, um, if you don't learn a trade, if you buy or oh, if you buy or sell land, you get executed. If you uh, if you claim to own land, then mean words get written on your forehead. You sit in a stool in front of everyone, and then you have a year of servitude. Hiring people for wages. That gets you a servitude. Anyone who claims to be holy but then trades for possessions of the earth gets put to death. And as a witch, yeah, that's his utopia. I don't want to live there, but it's actually probably better than evil England at the time. But it still doesn't sound nice. I mean, the thing is, when a guy writes like something like this, it sounds to me like he doesn't have a lot of interlocutors, right? It's like most utopias, uh, I think Thomas More mm -hmm. does a, a good job of having demonstrated he's been sitting around some tables with some people, but... But most of yeah. them, they don't bear a lot of scrutiny. You can ask two or three questions and it starts to come apart. You know? Yeah, totally. Totally. So after a couple of years, he comes, so he comes out hard with this kill all the lawyers and everyone who buys and sells stuff and everyone has to share everything. And then a couple of years later, he does what a huge chunk of middle-class revolutionaries do. He gets given some land by his family, his, in this case, his, his father-in-law, and then um, settles down to join the own stuff for a living class. He, be, he becomes a Quaker and he ends up going on and moves to London and becomes a merchant again. That's, that's, that's that guy. But the thing that's really interesting to me, right, is that you've got this, like, it's a couple dozen people who squat some land, never actually get to harvest it. And then 400 years later, people are still talking about them. And, like, a lot of people still talk about them. And they, they're, the ideas and practices they develop, like, 
those are what have echoed. And that's what's interesting to me, the, the greater harvest of their work or whatever. And basically it's just that the smallest movements, which don't seem to accomplish their goals, sometimes actually can be a huge deal, is, is really interesting to me. 300 years later, in the 1960s, you get other people who call themselves diggers. This time, it's an anarchist guerrilla street feeder group in San Francisco. And they're basically like the raddest hippies around. Uh, they combine the, yeah. the underground art scene with the new left. They're trying to create a society without capitalism or money. They perform plays for free. They distribute free food every day in Golden Gate Park. They opened up free stores, stores which everything in the store is free. They founded free medical clinics. They distributed their papers for free. And the way that they printed their papers is that they snuck in in the middle of the night to the Students for Democratic Society offices and used their printers. They put on free shows with all the like big 60s artists, Grateful Dead, Janis Joplin, Jimi Hendrix. They offered free housing for homeless youth. They popularized tie-dye um, in the hippie scene. And they popularized whole wheat bread in America. Uh, it's wild. Yeah. Yeah. Like, and it's funny to me because um, I don't actually like whole wheat bread because I don't eat bread because I want to be healthy. I eat other food to be healthy. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, the thing is, like, but, but whole grains are better for you than refined grains. No, totally. Right? It's a, totally. So, so yeah, that's the, yeah. that's the thing. Yeah. And, it, but they also, you know, mm -hmm. the diggers in San Francisco are very much romanticizing uh, a different past and they're doing a thing where, you know, that I think is not without merit mm -hmm. uh, that says, you know, hey, the more processed your food is, the less healthy it's likely to be. Yeah. Right? And uh, uh, no, it's not absolutely true. It's like, if it's got nutrients in it, then it's got nutrients, it's fine, you know, but but I think your body, it, it, it sort of seems, you know, self-evident that like, you know, yeah. the, the food that, that gives your body the least trouble is the one that's going to take, you know, give you more energy than it takes, you know. Yeah. Which is why this show is sponsored by whole wheat bread that I don't even like. <laughs> you know, John, I've been thinking about whole wheat bread and I've been thinking, I don't even like this, Love but it. I think I'm going to eat it. That's right. See, this is what, you know, I've been, I was, I, what we're talking about whole wheat bread. Have you considered what is it, Roman meal? Yes, friends, Roman meal. <laughs> <laughs> and we are also supported by these other advertisers. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no spy girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. Just being me. Amy Winehouse, Back to Black, directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R, under 17, not a minute without parent, only in theaters May 17th. Okay. I love Walker Hayes. He's amazing. He's so fun, such a great entertainer. And that's why I'm so excited that JCPenney and country music singer songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited time men's collection for the everyday guy. The Walker Hayes for JCPenney collection is an upbeat playlist of instant classics with laid back appeal and down-home vibes. As a dad of seven kids, he knows exactly what fathers want and need when it comes to their style. 
This collection reflects his casually cool styles with outdoor-inspired details and versatile colors. Perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th, just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. And we are back from those ads. I hope all of them were from wholesome foods and not terrible things, because sometimes terrible things ads come through. And we only have retroactive control about that kind of thing. <laughs> yep, we live in a hellscape. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, it's it's so interesting to me. One, I didn't realize that one of the biggest influences that the diggers had was on the American diet, you know, and the popularizing whole whole foods, right? Not the store. And well, that was a, that. The thing is, that also had they're not the first, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, what's his name up there? Um, CW Post, okay. you know, up in, I think, Michigan. Um, there, all, there are all these movements that trace back to the time of American transcendentalism okay. uh, and to the turn of the 20th century, where, uh, and they are kind of indivisible from some religious ideas, though many of these are more universalist ideas. But, but, uh, but yes, yeah, CW Post, and I feel like there's another one in Michigan, but maybe it's all him. And so they have some very sound ideas about nutrition and they have some very wacky ideas about <laughs> stuff too. You know, because I think some of these people are also into like orgone energy and stuff oh, like that. Yeah, you know? uh-huh. Like, like uh, they, 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 I mean, you know. Which I learned about yeah. from Kate Bush. Yeah, oh, is that right? <laughs> There's a cloud busting is about, I think, that guy, an orgone guy's kid. I actually don't know. I don't know orgone. it well. I learned yeah. about, I learned, learned about organ energy from a, a band called the Supreme Dicks. Okay. Uh, <laughs> a bit rather more obscure musicians from Western Massachusetts. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So the, the to, to keep talking about these new diggers, they also coined a bunch of radical slogans that have filtered out into the mainstream, such as do your own thing. And today is the first day of the rest of your life. And Much like how the original diggers had more than one commune, the new diggers did too. They operate at least one other chapter in the Lower East Side of Manhattan. And I want to quote from an amazing food historian, Renner Rye, about these East Coast diggers from a 2020 article in Blindfield Journal. The famous digger stew, which is made daily in huge white enameled pot in a kitchen behind the office, is ladled out, free of course, to anyone who wants it every afternoon around 5 o'clock in Tompkins Square Park, reads a New Yorker Talk of the Town article from 1967, about a faction of theater-centric anarchist group that made the Lower East Side home in the 1960s. When Clyde, Susan, Diego, and Richie asked, were asked to explain why they're performing these services for the Lower East Side community, each repeated the enigmatic digger motto, diggers do. The diggers saw sharing free food as a way to teach people about their anti-capitalist ideals. Um, and I just really like this whole quote because I like, I'd never run across this phrase diggers do before, but it, I feel like it, connects the spirit that connects these two groups Mm. because there's a problem people don't have food and there's a solution you get food and you give it to people and so yeah existing impediments like the enclosure of the commons or the system that the enclosure led to capitalism should just be ignored um which doesn't always work but it's a really fucking cool thing to do anyway yeah, yeah. I mean, it's something I'm always talking about. Like, we live in a time of incredible abundance. There's no reason for anybody to be hungry. Yeah, you know. Uh, and yeah, so, totally. but the thing, you, only thing you really do about that is give away food. You can't systemically uh, unless you, you know, like that's that's the argument for robust state power. Is mm-hmm. like it's hard to conceive of local solutions that result in 
in uh, in feeding all the people who need food, right? But I can conceive of a very giant state apparatus that sees to it, you know? Right. Yeah, I mean, you know, my 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 cheap excuse or my 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 cheap work around is be like, ah, well, that is handled at a federated level where you know we distribute the resources to the the local groups that are doing that work. Um, but like, I don't, I'm not trying to be like, and that's the structure that everything needs, you know? Yeah. And the newfangled diggers, at least all the history that I've found is like, we don't know how they funded all of this. But I would argue that I have a sense of how they funded it because I'm going to assume they fund it the way that modern anarchists fund it, which is some combination of crime, which is primarily uh, selling of drugs and sex work and scams, sympathetic people who have regular jobs and folks who come from generational wealth. I... I don't feel like this. Is I would hard. say the I mm-hmm. would say the latter quality is probably the biggest part of the income and hitting up people for money. Yeah, <laughs> it's yeah, probably fun fundraising essentially. Yeah, exactly. Like, it's to me, it's not this huge mystery. They, I'm like, eh, they did it like everyone does it, you know. Um, yeah, and they lasted longer than the original diggers, um, which is sort of amazing because the original diggers, huge in history, small thing. But I want to talk about another splinter off of the diggers uh or rather these are the people that they got accused of being that they were unhappy that they get called of the ranters if you combine the 1640s diggers and the 1960s diggers you might get the ranters if if they existed as an actual movement and not just a few writers who sparked a moral panic because it's actually hard to be sure right one of the writers is this guy named claxton he was born loris clarkson in 1615 but he was exactly the kind of cool guy to go by one name, in this case, a variation of his <laughs> last name. And he somehow managed to evade the like, I think he got to pick his own nickname, which is like the only time that happens in today's story. And he's an itinerant preacher. And he supported the levelers in their fight for the Republic. And he spent some time digging with the diggers. In 1650, at 35 years old, he writes a pamphlet called A Single Eye, in which he claims there's no such thing as sin. Specifically, sin was, quote, invented by the ruling class to keep the poor in order, uh, which actually gets to what you were saying about like, that might not be why they invented, you know, like. Yeah, yeah. I don't <laughs> think there was a meeting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, the only commandment he respected was thou shalt not kill. He's a, a pacifist as well. And the ranters, Claxton among others, they caused this moral panic. And soon how everyone is complaining about how these ranters are running naked through the streets, preaching naked to naked crowds, and they cuss and they drink and they fuck and they ruin monogamous marriages and they talk about the sexual liberation of women. And... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, they rule. Um, it's likely that they formed some kind of free love communitarian counterculture of some size in England in the 1650s that believed in the same Christian socialism and pacifism of the diggers, just plus sex and fun. Uh, they had nude rituals. Some of them were vegetarian. It's hard to know just how far it all went, though, because moral panics are always applied really broadly, right? There might have been thousands of them. There might have been dozens of them. There might have been five of them. Um, yeah. Left-wing historians want to say it was tons of people. Right-wing historians like, sure. like to focus on the possibility that it was mostly a media construction and there was only the writers. My, my best guess is that there was at least half a dozen or so of these preachers, each with a, a following of a couple dozen to a couple hundred people, which probably participated to various degrees in the religious debauchery, but it was also all played up entirely, you know? Right. But they wrote books and they got locked up for writing those books and those books were also burned. And 
As unpopular as the ranchers were with the royalists, they were also unpopular with the parliamentarians, despite having basically all of them served in the war against the king that had just overthrown the king. One of the books they burned was called A Fiery Flying Roll by a Beezer cop. And I think roll means like scroll in this context. So it's like basically like a fiery flying book. Uh, Yeah. The main message was that God was going to come down and level some shit himself, specifically cut down the rich and raise up the poor. And here's a quote from it that I just like because I, I like this kind of shit. How, how ye nobles, how honorable, how ye rich men for the miseries that are coming upon you. For our parts, we he- that hear the apostle preach will also have all things in common. Neither will call anything that we have our own. We'll eat your bread together in singleness of heart. We'll break bread from house to house. And Abizar had been in jail when he had a religious experience that lasted four days and four nights, and that turned him into a ranter. And during this ex- religious experience, he heard, go up to London, to London, the great city, and write, write, write. So he headed to London, and he preached to the poor on the street. Probably he was clothed, probably both him and his audience. And he preached about the evils of the rich. And he was known to, like, hug and kiss beggars, men and women, on the street. And I, I hope the beggars were comfortable with that. Um, and, and they believed that God is in everyone and every living thing. They rejected the dualism of heaven and earth. Since God was in all creatures, sex was holy. It was communion. It was God making love to God. And they said, rogues, thieves, whores, and cut purses are every whit as good as the great ones of the earth. And the holiest people are those who would clothe and feed the wicked. And at least a couple of them were gay. Sources at the time complained about a ranter who had a, quote, man-wife, as well as liaisons with women. And the man... Interesting. Yeah, no, right? Like, I, I want to learn more about... I've actually learned a little bit about um, uh, women husbands, right? But I haven't learned as yeah. much about man-wives. So I'm also interested in clothing the wicked. I'm, I like, uh, that's a, mm-hmm. you know, it's not where we're at at the moment. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and it's yeah. hard to, you know, the wicked... The wicked are not a third category from the people who you think are are messed up. They're the same people, right? And so, yeah. So, the, I don't have any any concrete or good ideas about this, but I'm but I'm interested. Like in these radical movements, you often find this tendency to want to, um, you know, to want to be righteous, as right. we would put it in, in Christian terms. You know, to want to want to, you know to to spend time with the sinner, right? Yeah. With the sinner, the wicked. These are abstract. It doesn't tell you anything, you know, it's like, but, but I, mean, I think about, you know, people who you and I would both consider our enemies. Right. Those, are, those are the wicked. Right. Right. And then how are you supposed to behave to them according to the renters and according to Christians? Well, you're supposed to give them your stuff. <laughs> it's, yeah, right. no, totally. It's, it's hard to, it's hard to square, right? It's, uh, yeah. it's, it's hard to, to, to do. I'm reading a, an Ursula Le Guin book right now. And she's one of my favorite authors. And it's this very pacifist book. It's called The Eye of a Heron. And it, yeah. it, um, you know, and it, it gets at, I mean, to me, it's like, I'm like, oh, this is why I, I am influenced by pacifism, but I am not a pacifist. I actually think it's okay to have enemies. I think what, for me, what matters is that there's like a, an off-road that someone can no longer be my enemy. You know, like, it's not like hounding someone to the ends of the earth, right? It's like stopping this movement that is trying to bring fascism the United States or whatever, or like, you know, Christian nationalism or whatever these different phrases are, right? Like, yeah. like I am interested, I'm okay with presenting them as my enemy. Um, these, these people that I, I am dedicated to trying to stop. And yet, there's still the like, 
not in not in a dehumanizing way and not in a way that al- doesn't allow them to like cease being this like it's a it's a set of behaviors rather than a um rather than a intrinsic quality to a person maybe is um yeah i don't know yeah yeah I, that's that's a big question yeah um okay so the so the man wife his name is john organ and i just had to get that out there because that is the best name for a 17th century gay mystic radical that i could possibly think of pretty good um, pretty good and they don't get to pick their own name right they didn't pick the ranters uh, it was the media's word for anyone who had wild ideas um yeah but john organ is totally a stage name <laughs> yeah totally <laughs> um and but one of the one of the pamphlets that they put out was called a justification of the mad crew and so at least this guy wanted to be called the mad crew um and Nigel Smith, a, a modern person, not a, not a ranter, in his introduction to a collection of ranter texts, he says that the ranters believed that there can be no afterlife save emer- emerging through decomposition of the dead body with glorious nature. And the, literally the reason I include this, this is the most religious episode I've, I think we've done, but the reason I, I include this is because that's like a, a core religious belief of mine, like possibly the only thing that I would call a religious belief of mine is that... Um, decomposition of the dead body with glorious nature is like what the afterlife is and so it's just interesting i've never seen it presented in a christian context but i don't know parliament doesn't like these ranters much right in 1650 they pass a blasphemy act and an adultery act pretty much designed to root out the ranters which also gets applied against the diggers and anyone parliament doesn't like uh it was this whole culture war thing because nothing ever changes basically the Blasphemy Act made it illegal to say that God, quote, dwells in the creature and nowhere else. And it made it illegal to say that swearing and drunkenness aren't sins. And the Adultery Act made fornication a capital crime. So society picks some group to have a moral panic about and uses it to justify repression on a society-wide level. A few of the writers get rounded up. One fellow had a hole bored through his tongue with a hot iron for his blasphemy. Some of the ranchers said, hey, I'm sorry, I didn't mean it. And they got out of punishment by, you know, repenting or whatever. And a few did the whole like, I don't respect this court. I'm not going to fucking talk to you. A Beezer cop took a different tact. Whenever people tried to arrest him, he just would run the fuck away. Like, like one time they came to his house and he was like, oh, I left my coat inside. I'll just run inside and get my coat really quick. And they're like, OK. And then he just runs out the back door and takes off. Eventually mm-hmm. they catch him. And he gets put in court and he interrupts the court by throwing apples and pears and nutshells at everyone until like basically trying to prove to everyone that he's crazy. He still gets thrown in prison until he writes a I'm sorry letter. And then he he does that. He gets out of prison. He changes his name to uh, Chaim, which is a a Bible reference to a line. I am what I am. And then he keeps preaching uh, everything for everyone. What I have, I share free the oppressed stays at it under a new name. Claxton, for his part, also was a repent-to-get-out-of-jail person. Um, and he used to argue with the diggers. Um, Gerard the digger was like, this rancher guy fucks too much. And Claxton was like, this digger says he wants a religion separate from money, but he takes tithes. Um, and of course, while they're busy infighting between the ranchers and the diggers, they're both getting hauled up in front of court. And all these anti-rancher laws are being passed that affect everyone. Um, and the persecution of the ranchers works, or at least it stops them from publishing. Their actual culture carried on for a while behind closed doors, but we lose track of it soon, and it's possible it died out with so many of its spokespeople and prophets having 
moved on or away. Um, I like to imagine that it didn't. I like to imagine that it just went underground and became multi-generational and they all took up digging and then are the same people as the 1960s diggers. And But none of that's true. It probably, it probably died out. Yes. One more really short sect to tell you about. Have you ever heard of the Muggletonians? Uh, the word is crossed my desk. I have no idea who they are, though. Yeah. No, I I'd never heard of these people. And I was just like, oh, the levelers, the diggers, and then the ranters. And then I was like, and the Muggletonians? So Claxton didn't go Quaker like a lot of the ranters did. He went something stranger. It's 1660. He's done being a ranter. He becomes a Muggletonian. And they get their name from literally the most British name person to have ever lived. Lottowick Muggleton. Pretty good. Yeah. And it got, this sect got its start when Lottowick and his cousin John Reeves went around basically around London being like, hey, buddy, you want to hear the one holy truth? All the others will get you damned to hellfire. And they were convinced that, um, they were convicted of denying the Holy Trinity, which I guess was a crime at the time. And they spent six months in jail. When they got out, people had read their pamphlets and they had a following. Uh, the Muggletonians believed that heaven is six miles above the earth and that God is somewhere between five and six feet tall and that he does not give a shit about what happens on earth because there is no incarnate devil, just bad thoughts people have. Um, the diggers are actually on this kick too, that the devil is the part of ourself that tries to be selfish. The Muggletonians believe that the soul dies when the body dies and both will be resurrected in the end times. Um, and they also managed to do some pretty cool stuff like they didn't believe in the supernatural. So because of that, you couldn't witch hunt under their beliefs, right? Because um, it just isn't real. So you just, there's no such thing as witches. So don't fucking burn people or whatever, um, which isn't, uh, whatever. They never appointed any leaders, held any conferences or organized themselves. They had no public worship or instruction. And despite all of that, they lasted 300 years. The Muggletonians, the last Muggletonian died in 1979. Uh, at least that we know of. I mean, probably. Hmm. Um, and yeah, those are... This whole time period is overflowing with sects and heresies and people trying out both cool and uncool ideas. Uh, there was another one called the Fifth Monarchist who followed a parliamentary officer who called himself King Jesus and attempted to overthrow Cromwell um, and later tried to over attempted to overthrow King Charles II. Um, I mean, you never know how many of these people had bad paint in their houses, you know? <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> totally. Um, but that's where we're going to leave it today. Uh, we're not, we're not going to talk about the fifth monarchist. They're just a weird random one-liner about someone who followed King Jesus. Yeah. Uh, them's, the, them's the diggers. There they are. <laughs> May they be well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So uh, let's see. Do you have um, either final thoughts or anything you'd like to plug? Oh, I don't really do concluding thoughts. I mean, okay. <laughs> really, okay. really, really not good at those. I mean, obviously, uh, buy, buy the entire back catalog of the Mountain Goes to better understand the subject of today's podcast. <laughs> yeah. uh, I no, would say Wolf and White Van have, gets at some we of have this. A, we have a new record, out, uh, but, uh, but, but yeah, it's like I always feel like, you know, when you're, when you're appearing on somebody's thing, that's, that's your promotion there. So, yeah. However, friends, if you're looking for an <laughs> album that might energize you, in these hard times, it might restore to you the energy you felt was lacking in your daily movements. You might try Bleed Out by the Mountain Goats, available now on Merge Records and Tapes. Bleed Out, the only <laughs> album that encourages you and all your friends to bleed out. <laughs> <laughs> really moving away from your earlier work. <laughs> uh, 
I'm excited for people to hear the title track. To be honest, it's it's one of the uh, it's got it's got a sort of a Gonzo old old energy to it. I mean, it's, okay. it's actually it's the one mellow song on the record, but it, but lyrically okay. they, lyrically it's pretty old school. Okay, I haven't heard it yet, so I'm I'm excited too. Well, uh, uh, yeah, there's it's it's coming soon. It's it's later this month. So ah, well, that's why I haven't heard it yet. Okay, <laughs> cool. Sophie, you have anything to plug? No, just just follow at Cool Zone Media on Twitter and Instagram. See see all the shows we have there, um, cool. including this one, which is lovely. Yay. And I have a book that's coming out on September 20th called We Won't Be Here Tomorrow, and it's a collection of short stories from that I've been publishing for the past while, um, some of which you might have heard on Cool Zone Media uh, on the show It Could Happen Here. And it's available for pre-order now, and if you pre-order it, you get an art print um, of a piece from the book. Cool and good. And, and we'll be back next week. On Monday Yay. and Wednesday. Yay, till the heat death of the earth. <laughs> Whatever. Universe. Bye. Cool People Who Did Cool Stuff is a production of Cool Zone Media. For more podcasts from Cool Zone Media, visit our website, coolzonemedia.com, or check us out on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bop Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and two-door cinema club. There's no distance too far for the perfect trip. Hi, checking in for... Or the perfect table. Hey, where are you? Coming! And when you get access to Resi Priority Notify with your Amex Platinum card... Hey, this looks amazing. I'm so glad you made it. And travel benefits at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel... It's worth the trip. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. With the new Dexcom G7, you can achieve better diabetes results without painful finger sticks. It sends your glucose numbers to your compatible phone or watch, so you can always see where you are and where you're heading. See how food and exercise affects your glucose, making it easier to spend more time in range and lower your A1C. Take control of your diabetes with the number one recommended CGM brand. It's easy to get started today at Dexcom.com. That's Dexcom.com. Dexcom data on file 2023. If your glucose alerts and readings from the G7 do not match symptoms or expectations, use a blood glucose meter to make diabetes treatment decisions. For a list of compatible devices, visit Dexcom.com. Com slash compatibility.